addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, it's just how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering. Hey everybody, welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Podcast. Very excited today to let you know about our guest, Kevin Griffin, a longtime friend of mine, somebody I've worked with a lot in the past, and somebody I would arguably say is responsible for the Buddhist recovery movement, and we really have him to thank for much of his work and his books and a lot of the work he's done over the last few decades. So you're in for a treat today. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and we'll see you soon. Take care, y'all. We're here today with Kevin Griffin. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Hi, Dave. Good to see you, man. It's good to see you, too. It's been a while. Yeah, well, I guess I was out there in Colorado, like, was it 2019? Yeah, I think it was a couple years ago. We had dinner at that sort of weird farm table place in the middle of the Yeah, yeah. It was great. Right, yeah. Yeah. It just, you know, everything this year is just sort of like this thing that you remove from all your memories and then you kind of go oh yeah right oh, yeah i was just out there <laughs> yeah right <laughs> last summer except the summer before i used to do things <laughs> yeah i remember that sort of well i'm really happy to have you thanks for taking the time because i you know without uh giving you too much praise which i would love to do is that i really feel <laughs> like we wouldn't even be talking about buddhism and recovery had it not been for your the work that you've done so i think that like myself many of us are grateful for you mm. and all the work and all the years you've been putting this in um but you like me also are a musician as well and started uh-huh. sitting at retreats before you got sober yeah and you know without getting into the whole war stories i'm just curious you know how long was that and what was it like to pop into ims or sit these yeah. retreats and then go back and drinking and going back and forth what was that back and forth like uh it was perfectly normal <laughs> in my mind i mean you know i just didn't have there's this sort of basic fundamental confusion and it's sort of a confusion about cause and effect. It was this confusion that I could go on a retreat and it was going to somehow change all this other stuff that didn't have it really have anything to do with meditation and retreats, that there was some like magical spiritual experience I was going to have that then like everything would be fixed. And it, it, But I didn't really think that drinking and using was a problem. Right. That was also the thing. I didn't... I thought that my problem was I'm not a rock star. I'm not getting laid enough. I'm, you know, I don't have enough money. Um, I'm not famous. I'm depressed. That, I mean, you know, some of these are facetious, but, but, you know, one of the big one was once was I'm, I'm depressed regularly and like, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with my drinking. In fact, my, you know, smoking marijuana is my daily maintenance to stay out of depression, you know. Right, so, right. so it was just like there wasn't really any 
there's like I say, it's a fundamental confusion, which you know Buddhists would call ignorance, or right? Delusion. delusion, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I was the same way, and I'm asking. I'm curious if you have felt this way because I felt this way. I approached, and I think a lot of people approach Buddhism with this idea that there's something that I don't know. And if I knew what it was, all these other things would work out. And I thought if I sat enough of retreats, I would get some message from the universe that would sort of straighten yeah. everything out. No, that's, that's really well put. Um, and one of the things that gets you thinking that is that where did you go? The Insight Meditation Society. So insight in the English language means an idea. In Buddhism, it doesn't mean an idea. Totally it not. means an understanding. And this is like a classic like example of how the poor translations of the, the Buddhist teachings confuse us and take us in the wrong direction. So I, I, like you, I thought, I'm just going to keep meditating because they would talk about all these insights you were going to have. Right. And, and, and I would think, I'm just going to keep meditating. And then one day, kaboom, it's totally. going to like light up and I'm going to get it. Then I'm going to walk out of here and have it all figured out. But for me, my experience of insight, you know, the title of Joseph Goldstein's book was reading a book like the experience of insight or Jack Cornfield's a path with heart and going, Oh yeah, I, I get that. I had that experience. And then feeling, Oh, insight was was having the experience and 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 understanding the experience which a lot usually when i'm meditating i don't understand my experience it's only afterwards and so often with somebody else's guidance that i understand it and then i start to put it together so it's it's one of the questions sort of about enlightenment ultimately and what is it and how does it work so but right. let's not go there right no, now totally so, you know, when, when did you kind of go, oh, shit, like, I probably need to put down the, the bottle, you know? And so what was it like to, to get sober and then go back into retreat without the crutches of alcohol and drugs? You know, what was that? What was that experience like? And how yeah. long did that take? Yeah, I mean, when you look back, you know, it's easy when you're like, oh, here I am. Everything's fine now. But but this long process, because... You know, in my book, One Breath at a Time, I describe a lot of the, the delusion period. Right. I started doing Buddhist practice in 1980, and I went on a three-month retreat in 1981. But after that, that didn't fix me in the way. And then, you know, I followed this guru who I still don't know what his real name was. <laughs> and he was homeless, you know, which, you know, didn't, you know, didn't made a lot of sense at the time. No, I mean, it's like perfect, you know, he's a real Buddha, you know, but that just took me off, you know, and, and that was leading to my bottom and, you know, where I, where I wound up homeless and, and where I left him because I realized that was not happening. So, um, you know, I mean, the, it was kind of like the, even by the time I got sober, it was like I realized Buddhism wasn't going to fix me, and but I still loved it. So it was kind of like I did it. I did my daily meditation, and I went on a 
little retreats. I mean, I wasn't going on any more big ones for a while. Right. And so, so I, I was, I was like, because really the Buddhism and, and everything else leading up to my sobriety was a search for some answer. All through my 20s, I was looking for answers. And sometimes it was in relationships. And sometimes it was like astrology is going to have the answer, you know. Right. And, and, and by the time I got sober, it was like Buddhism had just become another thing that I had passed through. But I still... I was still connected to it, but it just was like I'd become cynical and embittered about um, solutions. You know, I'd had therapy. I'd been in a mental hospital when I was 18 for a long, long period of well, my whole 18th year or 19th year anyway. And so, you know, I felt like I'd tried everything and there was no solution. And and I cer certainly did not think that stopping drinking and using was the solution because that wasn't going to do anything, but I tried everything else. So, all right, I'll do this. And then as soon as I got sober, I was like, oh, wait, like this is a lot better. And, and still it took me a long time to truly embrace recovery. I mean, it took a year before I actually like started to show up and do the work in, in AA, which is how, where I got sober in 1985 but so at that point I was like, okay, uh, I still love meditation, but I looked at the 12 steps and I, I couldn't figure out how it was going to fit with that. You know, nobody had like figured it out. And at that point that I heard of, and, and so I just kept it separate, like, okay, I'm going to keep doing my Buddhism, but I won't tell anybody kind of right, thing. Right, like, totally. like these people in AA, they're not going to get it. Like when I'm like, you know, there isn't I mean, and I didn't like God, whatever, fine, God, I'll pray, you know, right. but, and, th and then I was just going to like, like a three day retreat each year, but I was meditating regularly, you know, daily. And I, I, I had this idea of like, I've got these separate things and, and I don't, I'm not going to worry about it because I just need them. And that was for years because, because once I got sober, I realized my problem was not my med meditation. I was a really good meditator. <laughs> like by then my problem was everything else. Right. And I had to, I realized I had to solve my real world problems, like my work life. Oh, oh, being a rock star is not going to happen. I'm 35 now. It's not, you know, and it, you know, what would it look like to just be a worker among workers and that kind of thing. So, so it took this period of five, six years of just kind of like rebuilding my life. And by then I'm back in school and I moved to Berkeley, which kind of is like the center of the Buddhist world in the West, practically. It's the Mecca of Western Dharma, really. Yeah. And I was like, and I, you know, I found a teacher who I had known in the past here and I started to be like, you know, I, I really, I've got to make this work. I got to make my Buddhism work with my 12 steps. I can't keep them separate anymore. So there was this kind of um, re-engagement and it was like coming back to the Dharma, but now with much more maturity. And, and then, so, so what, what really happened was that, uh, I mean, on, on a technical meditation level, <laughs> Meditational, I like that. Yes, a new word. Was that uh, 
my concentration started to really uh, coalesce. Yeah, and that and I started to experience uh, deeper, deeper states. It sounds like you have a similar, you and I have very similar trajectories in a sort of roundabout way, which I always find Mm -hmm. to be interesting. But, you know, I'm curious to see what you think about this, because I had a similar trajectory. And what I come to realize was that actually, the and I spent that same five or six years, I needed to learn Buddhist sila, the idea of sila, living ethically in the world. I didn't learn that in my Dharma practice. I actually learned that in my first five years of AA. Here's how you pay your electric bill before they shut your power off. Here's how you don't lie to everybody when you're scared. Like I actually learned what I would say Dharma sila in AA. And of course, it had been implied in Buddhist practice all along, but like you and I being in the early stages of IMS, it was so meditation path factor heavy that... Uh, th- th- did you find that to be kind of the way that you came back around? Yes, that's, that's a perfect description, Dave. And, and it really does point to, you know, one of my kind of themes of my teaching is is kind of pointing to, just as you're saying, how Western Buddhism flipped the path upside down. Totally, yeah. It's supposed to be the morality or sila followed by the mental cultivation of samadhi, and, and resulting in wisdom. We do it totally backwards. And we start with wisdom by reading a book and right. going like Zen. Wow, this is really interesting. Emptiness, enlightenment. And then we're like, how do I get that? Oh, you meditate. So then we meditate for a while. And then after we're meditating for a while, we're like, oh, you know, uh, some of the other things I'm doing, you know. Don't really line uh, up. <laughs> don't, and and it's messing up my meditation too. So, and um, so yeah, we kind of do it backwards, and exactly as you say, like the when I worked a program, a recovery program, I'm, I'm kind of you know I, I'm trying to make my recovery program more generic these days when I talk about it because I know there's so much like pushback about the twelve steps, but obviously that's another story sure. you know, we can get into or not. But but working a recovery program, as you said laid that foundation of sila and yeah and how do you get a job oh you know you you in those days you look in the paper and you make phone calls you know you just do th- taking care of those things like uh, you know how do you get in a relationship oh you don't go to the bar and wait until two o'clock and see who's still there totally. you know you 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 know take it you you ask someone to for to coffee <laughs> like i i literally had never been on a date me neither you know? like a date like what like where you go to the girl's house and you pick her up planned out like in advance and and you you go to dinner and like and then maybe you take her home it's like what i know i i've 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 neatly avoided that my whole life thankfully because going i'd i'd rather teach forgiveness meditation in a maximum security prison than go on a date with a cute girl (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a whole other story yeah yeah so i think that that's where, where it gets where you know there's there's been a kind of hole there and i think you and i found that to be the case it's like oh i learned you know how they good old-fashioned get my shit together you know in aa and and i teach this now it's one of the things that's confused me like about right effort was you know preventing unwholesome mind states from arising. I was always like, well, how do you do that? And it was like, well, yeah. you live a good life. <laughs> if you have integrity, you don't feel terrible about all the shit you did yesterday. 
Yeah, you can't do it like at the last minute. <laughs> That's a really good point because I, I do sometimes like struggle with like, how do I explain, uh, you know, avoiding the arising of unskillful thoughts? Like, oh, right. It's not something you're like, you're meditating. It's like, oh, wait, keep that thought away. Oh, wait, wait, avoid that. Avoid that. No. Yeah, it's people like, think it's like a meditator's force field. And yeah. it's like, actually, no, it's, it's, and it took me a long, long time until very recently to realize, oh, the prevention, it's a feeler thing. Yeah. That's right. That's really well put. And I'll, when I I'll sit down, steal it. When I sit down, I don't have much of this crap because I can't tell you the last time I did something that I actually feel terrible about. Yeah. Huh. Oh, geez, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You don't ever yell at anybody. Oh, sure, I do, but I don't feel terrible. <laughs> I feel regret okay. and I feel bad. Right, right. I yeah, don't I, feel like, you know, the like, you know, that sort of like, I'm a bad person. Terrible. Yeah, it doesn't linger into your meditation. And that, I mean, that's one of the things I've noticed that, like, if I have done something that makes me uncomfortable in my meditation, usually what I do is I stop meditating and I go make amends for yeah, it. Yeah, right. Totally. <laughs> like, oh, get that cleaned up. I yeah. don't want that shit around. Yeah, yeah. totally. Let me ask you this question, because I think this is interesting, because, you know, Buddhism and 12 steps and recovery and Buddhism is now kind of like not that sort of known now but uh -huh. you know you were the kind of the one who kicked the door open on this at what point and what was going on in your life when you actually started to get the inspiration and the idea of your first book one breath at a time like yeah. you know back when you wrote that book it wasn't like there was a whole bunch of them out there no. what, what was that process like was it scary were you like a little bit apprehensive about like oh who am i to do this like what was that process like because <laughs> i mean that's an epic i mean like if it wasn't for that book we wouldn't be talking right now i believe yeah. Well, like everything else, it was a very long process. I mean, it, that book was published in 2004 and the, the beginnings of the path to getting there besides the recovery and Buddhist path parts go back to 1988 when I went back to school. And at the end of my first English course, the teacher said, did you ever think about being a writer? Huh. And which, you know, is a really critical moment in my life and and I didn't want to be a writer, but I was very flattered and I'm very prone to flattery, you know. But I also had learned this thing in the program, which is take advice from people who know stuff. Like, oh, somebody makes a suggestion. Okay, I'll try that. And I tried it and I fell in love with writing. Not surprisingly, like you as a musician, it's not that, as I've come to see, it's not that I am a musician narrowly, it's that I have an artistic temperament and I'm drawn to that. If I could paint, I would probably paint. That's just not, you know, my, uh, that particular skill, but it turned out I had this other talent besides plucking strings on a guitar was, was I could write. And so I fell in love with writing and, and I failed at that just like I did at music, you know, wrote a couple of novels that never got published. But in the meantime, as happens, I developed these skills. And then I actually wound up being a technical writer, you know, but I just, so I, so basically writing one breath at a time was very self-centered as most things are in my life, which is like, I can't sell a, a novel. Maybe I can sell a Buddhist book on recovery. You know, it was very like, oh, like that's how I'll become a rock star. That's how I'll, you know, all that ego stuff was in sure. there. But it, but it, 
because as you say, like the sila, the karmic sila that I had created by like being in recovery and doing the next right thing. And like the way it manifested, even so though there was still this kind of like part of me, like, Oh, this will be really cool. I'll get published, you know, and I'll make money. All that. It's the new record deal. <laughs> right. Right. So, but so anyway, in practical terms, what happened was, I started thinking about that after I, be, I because I became a Dharma teacher in the late nineties. And very quickly I realized, Oh, there is an interest in what I'm doing. Like I, I didn't think there would be like any, I thought I was like unique, right? I'm right. the only Buddhist sober Buddhist around. And I realized, no, I'm not the only one. In fact, there's a lot of them around here. And I would give Dharma talks that would sort of slip in, recovery and people would really respond to that recovery. People would be like, Oh, can you talk more about that? So that's, it just started to build. And eventually I actually got laid off from a job and my wife said, why don't you work on that book proposal? And that was 2002 Wow! Uh, while you're collecting unemployment. And um, you know, so, so it was just, it was a very natural thing, you know, and, and I, she, my wife worked really closely with me to develop the voice for that book, which is kind of the key element of it is what really makes it an accessible book that I'm, I'm speaking very much as a ordinary person in that book. I try to, you know, as an ordinary person in recovery. So, so then it was like applying once again, the one day at a time that we learn, like just show up at your computer each day and write a certain amount of words and do that day after day. And eventually there'll be a book. That's awesome. You know, so it just simple. sort of like, it sort of just happened. Like it was just sort of happenstance in a way. You ended up, was it hard to get it published? Or was there multiple people who wanted it? Or did you, how much, how much sort of soliciting did you have to do to get it out into the world? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's another part of how I knew that it was like, the right thing because with my novels, I mean, I actually did get a, an agent with one of my novels, but you know, it wasn't, somebody was enthusiastic, but with one breath at a time, I had two friends, both Dharma teachers who had published books and both of their agents looked at it and both the agents liked it. But one of them was like, I'm not going to take this. And the other one was like, I'll take this. So, that was big because getting an agent is hard. And, um, and I don't know, you know, the good thing about having an agent is you don't have to see all the rejection letters. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. So I really don't know how many people she sent it to, but, but the moment that was really powerful was she tells me, okay, Rodale's going to publish this. And the editor from Rodale calls me up and says, this is really uh, good timing because this is my 15th. I'm celebrating 15 years of sobriety today. Nice. You know, and so she was in love with it. I bet. And we really connected. That's awesome. So that was just this incredible experience. Like it's not just somebody who's like publishing it. She said that when she got, when she saw the book proposal, she took it into her editorial meeting and said, you know, I don't care what any of you say, we're publishing this book because she knew like, right. they were like, they were like Buddhism in the 12 steps. What, who's, what's Who, that? What? Yeah. <laughs> who's that for? Like, and she's like, no, this, 
we're doing this. Right. And she is very ferocious in that way. And I, yeah, but, but again, yeah, there's that sense of like, when you're on the right path, you know, things tend, tend to happen. I mean, you know, and it's not like, oh, that was easy because right. that was like 15 years of learning to write and, you know, a, a lot of failure along the way and, and putting in the work to show up and get it done. But at the end of the day, it was, you know, what it was, it, 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 it was right. It, and you were suggesting like, it was just time. It was, there was a fortuitous element of it that my lived experience and my lived skills came together at a time when the world was ready for this particular thing. 10 years before there was the book called Zen and recovery or something right. like that. It was like Mel conditions Ash. arising, you know, like the uh, conditions arose and you were just one of those conditions. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Let me ask you, I ask everybody this and uh, what do you, you know, for, for people in recovery, what do you think Buddhism actually offers that maybe the 12 steps doesn't? Uh-huh. Yeah. Really important question. So, First of all, obviously, the meditation training, which it's the, and, and this is why it's so interesting working with these two uh, traditions is that it's there in the 12 steps, but it's not developed. No, it's and just kind of like, you should do this. Good luck. You should do it. Yeah. And, and there's no explanation about how to do it. So Buddhism gives you this way, to, this deep dive into that. And that then, allows actually, you know, my take is that Dharma practice allows you to encounter the steps on a deeper level that like things like inventory and amends, you know, turning it over to a higher power that all of these things come alive in a deeper way when you, when you develop a deeper meditation practice and, and that really can open that door. Um, I think that, uh, you know, another thing, uh, well, a, a lot of things. I mean, so um, the the idea of self-compassion and loving kindness is something that's so deeply needed in the recovery world, Absolutely. as you know. And and it's one of the things that where people get really stuck and and people who are wounded and people who have had trauma and they're if they're just trying to fix it through writing another inventory and getting down on their knees and saying another prayer, a lot of times it's just not enough. You know, so they have to really cultivate this, this inner work around self-care and, and that broader view, which is then not self, not to take it personally. So it's, this is one of the paradoxes of, of Buddhism and of spiritual life is that we have to work very hard on our, on our self and healing ourself and our own story and, and uncover that and heal that. But we also have to be able to take this broader picture of it and see, Oh, you know, not to take it so personally and see, you know, I'm wounded, but all beings are wounded and I suffer all beings suffer. And, and I'm not alone in this. I'm not unique in this. And so I don't become so attached to that story, which is again, one of the things that we see happens in the 12 step world that, that people can become so attached to their story that they, they can't get out of it. 
they stay in a loop with yeah. it, right? That and that can be a cause of relapse, or it just can be a cause of, you know, the sort of never experiencing uh, happy, joy, joyous, and free. You know, which which is really why you know one thing I want to say, and maybe this is a good moment to say it, is that my work is not about getting people sober, and and I think that what you're doing and things like recovery dharma and and other programs are can be really skillful and are vital to helping people to make that transition from active addiction into at least early stages of recovery i'm interested in and what i think i have to offer to people is a little further down right. in the the, the uh, past the early stages of recovery but when you're uh, because Recovery's a long game, and 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 it doesn't, you know, solving the initial problem doesn't solve the the problem. You right. know, the, new problems come, and and we need spiritual solutions and ways of and of of dealing with the challenges that come up. And so many people hit these spiritual walls in recovery at five years or ten years or twenty years. You know, people come to me. I've been sober for twenty years, and finally now I feel like I'm getting it after working with you. I'm like, wow, okay. I, know. I don't know what those twenty years were like. But I know it's boy. hard to hear that message, and I hear that a lot. Which you really tee me up for my next question. I think. Um, and I don't know that I'm trying to do it. I think I actually believe that, generally speaking, Buddhist recovery in, in all of its elaborate forms is not very newcomer friendly. Oh, and I, right. I don't think I don't think that it's going to get a lot of people sober. So the next question I do is I just flip the script and say, what do you think the 12 steps offers that Buddhism doesn't? Yeah. Well, one of the problems with Buddhism is that it's sh- it's a shiny like magical object in people's minds. Like mm-hmm. they, they kind of see this like, oh, I'm going to be spiritual now. So, and that opens the door to the spiritual bypass. The idea that, oh, I'm just going to meditate my way around my problems. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, you know. Which is kind of where we started at the call, right? Like that whole idea. Yeah. We, we and, both had to go through it. Yeah. and And there's this, I I see that there's a new manifestation now of this, I don't want to call myself an alcoholic thing, which has been around forever because nobody wants to call themselves an alcoholic, but it's kind of manifesting in in some ways that people are doing some interesting things. And I'm not going to say that they're not useful in certain ways, but there's just a risk in not plunging right into the problem and facing the, the drugs and alcohol you know, I don't care if you call yourself an alcoholic right. or not. It's just the recognizing that my relationship with drugs and alcohol or whatever my addiction is, is just untenable. It's right. not, it's not workable. There's no harm reduction version of it. There's no moderation version of it. I've tried all those things. It's a Duke I mean, thing. You, it's a Duke yeah, thing. Right. I mean, if you've, if you haven't tried those things, you know, maybe they'll work for you because there are people, many people who drink moderately and do all that. But, you know, if you've tried all those things over and over, like most of us who are in recovery, you know, like it just doesn't work. And you need to just be able to see that as a red line that doesn't work and really face it and and get over the shame thing. This idea that like it's a sh- there's oh stigma and shame around being an alcoholic, it's like screw that. As far as I'm concerned, like 
there's no stigma in my mind about it. I feel no stigma. In fact, I advertise it. You know, that's my right. brand. That's my <laughs> lifestyle. It's like I'm an alcoholic. Eh? You know, you have it on the front of your book. You know, it's just like, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is that, like, you know, it reminds me. You know, I love this story. There was this woman uh, in my my home group in L.A. where I got sober in Venice Beach. And she, she loved to tell this story about how this young woman came into a meeting and said to her, you know, I just, I just don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not. And my friend said to her, oh, be one. It's fun. You know, <laughs> it is fun, actually. And that epitomized it to me. It's like, yeah, don't make it into a th- problem. Don't make it into an issue. Just like embrace it. It's not really, once you get over this idea that it's something bad, then, you know, it, it's, it's just like an, uh, an, oh, I don't want to take on another identity. And, you know, what I say to those people who say that is, okay, after you get rid of your other identities, then we'll talk about this one. Right. But like this sort of idea like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to take on an identity. It's like you already have like 20 of them. You right. know, don't, pre- don't pretend to me or that you've like thing beyond identity. Yes, it's exactly. So, uh, but, you know, I, I get it. I mean, it's hard. Nobody... You know, nobody wants to do this. And it just looks really, uh, it's not that it looks bad from the outside. It's that we create this image in our mind of what not drinking or not using, you know, is going to look like. Yeah. Well, the thing about it, nobody psyched at their first AA meeting. Nobody ever was like, awesome. I know. Everybody's like, oh, fuck, man. I guess it's come down to this. I mean, that's how yeah. I felt. I was like, I guess yeah. I'll just do this now because everything else, I'm, you know, hey. it's that powerless thing. You know, I, I heard you mention this. Uh, I listened to your uh, interview recently with Dan Harris, which was really cool, by the way. Uh, and you said something that I, that was so obvious to me that I never framed. It was this idea of like, I sit down and I'm powerless over what pops up in my head. Yeah. Just this yeah. idea of like, and, and, you know, we know that that's true, but I think people sit down with the intention of, okay, I'm going to meditate so I can control my mind. <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you get really good at it, like the Buddha, apparently you can. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's letting go of control and the need to control and the self view about what goes on in the mind. That's where the freedom comes. Exactly. Well, it's taken me a long time to get there, but I I believe now in the timeline sequence of present time awareness, my work is actually post-arising. You know, like, I mean, like, really, like, things come up, and then as I become aware or I can recognize what's coming up, now – now we're now I'm beginning with that. And I spent a lot of time when again with the preventing of the mind states of like that to me that's sort of the sweet spot yeah. of of trying to be in that space in a way where I feel like it's important and I feel like it's interesting. And if I can do that, that seems to be like the needle to be riding. And and I'm a little bit embarrassed and disappointed it took me so long to get there. I, I think you have to clarify for me a little bit what you're saying when you say post-arising. So you mean when you're meditating and then it's it's not about like nothing comes up. It's about what you do with the stuff that does come up. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that kind of goes back to when I said my insight comes like in retrospect, you know, rarely, you know, the idea of like, 
being mindful of thoughts, it's a, that's a that can be a really confusing thing. Because it doesn't really work that way, does it? No. It's like 99.999% of the time, we're only aware of thoughts in retrospect. It might be just a second ago, but it's not in, in the present moment. Only, and I'm sure you've had this experience, only when you're deeply into a retreat, when you just get to that really still place that you can actually feel the thought starting to form. It's actually nonverbal. Right. It's just, it's just, it's, and it, it, well, you know, it made me realize like, oh, this is how language happened. When people, before people could speak, they had thoughts, but they didn't have a verbal form. Anyway, that's like. No, I have a two-year-old. I totally get it. Yeah. yeah. I communicate with him all day long. He doesn't talk, but he, he's able to figure out how to get me to go get the goldfish or whatever the hell it is he wants. He's like, yeah. And so, yeah, so there's that, that experience. And then I find that then, and I want to talk to you about this too, because um, I was very happy when you wrote the living kindness book, because Uh you always sort of, uh, if I ever had any criticism of you, which I really don't, I always thought you were a little (laughs) Vipassana heavy, a little bit sort of insight heavy. And then when I talked to you, you would given me the book, which I think is one of, I think actually my favorite book on Metta, congratulations, your living Uh, kindness book is great. And I was so happy to see, well, Kevin's actually writing a book on loving kindness. Now, where did, talk about that a little bit, because, you know, (laughs) I I was, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised, but I, I didn't see it coming, I guess, just sort of knowing how you're wired and having conversations with you in the past. Well, I don't like the mechanical form of loving kindness meditation. Just the phrases, you know, are you what the phrases, right? And, and the, you know, go through this person, this person, that person. And I, I used to do it. And there were, there was a time when I got something out of it, but my practice has become more and more formless over time as as i think most most people who practice long term and deeply it, it, most people's practice evolves into a more formless practice meaning that you know there's not like a, a, so much of a mechanical element to it or a, it's a, not so a, technique a, a, heavy it's like you yes. learn how to play the scales you can put the chords together now you can just sort of play yeah exactly so uh, and and you know i've been an observer shall we say of the western buddhist scene and, and and i've always felt a little bit of an outsider uh and you i'm pretty sure can relate to that as uh, yeah. your rebel saint uh identity yeah, would totally. imply and p- one of the ways that i felt like an outsider was like um you know all this happy happy loving kindness talk and like that it just, you know, like I've pointed out to people, if you look at pictures of Dharma teachers, they're always smiling. Maybe not always, but usually they are smiling. And the message that I think that transmits is if you meditate right, right. you'll be happy like me. Right. And if you're not happy and you're meditating, then... I'm sorry, but you must be doing something wrong. Oh boy, you just you just you just spoke to half the meditation population, right? At least I hope so. You know, because I want people to know, like, screw that. Yeah. And well, screw that's what I like about your meditation. book is because I think what you're talking about, if I have a similar thing, is a, a kind of suspicion towards inauthenticity. Yes, where I'm exactly. like, I'm like, you're actually, I know, 
that yeah. underneath it all, you're a miserable prick like the rest of us or whatever it is. But like, it's that fake facade. Yeah. And that's why I don't like the word. That's why I think you did a brilliant job calling it living kindness. The loving part of kindness yeah. always bothered me. And then it turned out yeah. when I started looking at the poly, it's actually not there. It's right. some shit that Sharon made up in the seventies from n- not in a negative <laughs> way. But for me, right. love, the concept of love was so damaging and so scary yeah. that the that 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 right there got me in trouble, and so I think the 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 way that you talk about it, not going through the, you know, you, it's a very non traditional way that you talk about it, but it's also a very canonically accurate book that well, you've written, and I think it's super brilliant in the way that you talk about it as integrated as part of a mindfulness practice. Right, it, that's what it was an attempt to do that. So uh, let's go back and just give you know acknowledge. So we're talking about Sharon Salzberg really introduced loving kindness on a massive level with her book, Loving Kindness totally. in 1995. Fantastic book and transformative book and, and because she was really addressing what she saw in the Western Vipassana world, which was a lot of people grinding on their meditation and and beating themselves up and making it making themselves miserable. And she was trying to bring, lighten it up and bring, uh, you know, the, the heart more into the forefront of practice. And over time, that evolved into a whole kind of movement, and that's where it started to turn into something that I felt like was a, a light, L-I-T-E, kind of version of it. And and so living kindness was my attempt to, as you say, go back to the early teachings of the Pali Canon and see what what did the Buddha really say about loving kindness? Because what was what Sharon was working with primarily was and you know i don't know how much you get into this in your course but the vasudhi maga which is see i don't teach the vasudhi maga i don't teach the right. categories i think right. so, i'm a little bit of a fundamentalist i'm like it's not in there like the and the categories always would, would get me to i'm like i can't keep up with all this crap yeah yeah so but in any case for people who don't know about this the vasudhi maga is a set of commentaries that came about a thousand years after the death of the buddha and so uh, and they're very they can be very useful but you still want to go back, like check what did the Buddha really say? And the Buddha was much less uh, prescriptive about uh, loving kindness. And and my argument to a great extent is the main thing he's talking about is non-hatred. You hear much more about non-hatred than you do necessarily about loving kindness itself right. in the suttas. And, and that struck me as a really interesting idea. Like if I can just not hate anybody, that's a really good place to be. And it, and it's a, sort of an acknowledgement like that, oh, you can do all this loving kindness over here, but just like you're pointing to, at the same time, are you still holding on to this negative stuff? And and as so much of what the Buddha teaches is like, just let go. It's not like, oh, acquire more love and let go of the hate. Right. And what's going to be, what's going to be left? Well, what, of course, is what's going to be left is kindness, uh, you know, and, and, and equanimity. So, um, yeah. So I wanted to address that and kind of bring that forward and, and sort of think about all these different elements of meta, including like the concentration elements and the, the antidote to the hindrances and all these ways that it's operating that aren't just like, oh, I'm feeling love. You know, well, great. You're feeling love now. What happens in five minutes? Everything's impermanent. Oh, yeah, right. What do I do about that? So uh, it, it becomes a really interesting topic then when you when you open it up like that.
Would you say like like Sharon? And of course, I love Sharon. I don't mean to be negative about it. I just think and it's my own dysfunctional relationship to the world love that was actually the whole problem there. But yeah, did you notice? This, it. it sounds like um, you had a similar experience. And tell me, well, you know, because you're working in, in for many years now in a sort of a Buddhist recovery context, did you mm-hmm. start to notice as a teacher working with students and teaching retreats? What, 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 was people's experience, their own negativity, their own sort of suffering, was that part of what inspired you to write the book? Was just seeing like, oh man, people need this. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it w- wasn't like I just discovered it from, you know, no, I mean, that's just, it's such an, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's the one book I've written that I did not directly aim it at a recovery audience. Right, sure. there's There's no real discussion of that. Uh, there's no attempt to kind of make that bridge. No, it's a Dharma book. It's just a solid Dharma metta book for sure. But it's clearly one of the biggest issues for for addicts is is self hatred. I mean, you know, filling yourself up with intoxicants on a regular basis is not an act of kindness towards sure, yourself. No. So yeah, I, th- it's, you know, uh, uh, but as you're impl- as you also sort of were implying, my my thinking and this isn't original but and i'm seeing it more and more in the mindfulness world is that a an attitude of kindness towards myself in my practice and in my life has to be a partner to mindfulness in fact mindfulness alone without kindness can be kind of harmful if we if we misunderstand it or abuse it it's like oh i just start to see all my negative stuff just like when you're when you're early in your practice and you start to notice judging right classic thing like classic n- make a note of judging and then you're like judging judging and after a while you're like god i'm so judgmental and you're like wait now i'm judging the judging and, and <laughs> right so retreat you, number so, one <laughs> yeah it's a classic thing and but it's what's the antidote to that you know, the antidote isn't, I have to stop judging. It's, oh, you know, judging is painful. And everybody's judging, does judging. And let me be kind to myself. Is there a way that I can be kind to that judging? And can I look at that energy within me and maybe the underlying causes of why that's there? And can I bring a compassion to it and forgiveness? So, well, that's right. So it, I mean, you're pointing to something, too, that's, I think, important that you get from Dharma that you don't necessarily get from a secular mindfulness thing. And also you're talking with the judgment. You're working with it post-arising, which is actually yeah, a lot more skillful. Right. But the thing about it, to realize there's samasati, there's right mindfulness, yeah. which for me, that's the distinction I make. Well, samasati includes all the Brahma Viharas, Yes, where we can be mindful— and this is, of course, the whole category, the whole confusion: is mindfulness an ethical state or not? Yeah. I just have to assume that it is now because of all the confusion around it. But I think what, what we want is is not just sati, but samasati, which is the yeah. complete. And in without the Brahma Viharas, I feel like mindfulness can be very incomplete. Where there's just like for me, it was almost like a hypervigilance. I was like, yeah, I'm aware of everything, and it's all crap. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That, that that's the risk, the hypervigilance. Exactly, that's really well a good thing to point out. And and yeah, and so you know when we start to, uh, you know, this is what our minds do. We try to we categorize things and we we say this is this and this is that and and there's all these different things. But there 
they're not really existing as separate entities. You know, mindfulness isn't just like a thing that's there. And then you, oh, let me get some of this loving kindness and bring it over there and connect it. It's like, right. It's like we're human beings having all this stuff and we're trying to mentally, we try to separate it and sort it out, but really we're, we're talking about things that are much more organic than that. And, and as you say, like Sati contains meta in sort of a, a, a pure way, uh, an intu- an intuitive way, I think. Mindfulness of that. Yeah, I worked with, um, I'm curious to see what you think about this because you used a word that I think is really important, which is attitude. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I learned kind of, maybe you did in the, you know, early in the 90s, IMS was very sort of Sayadaw Upandita and it was very kind of concentration, noting the object. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and now it's just like, well, <laughs> there's the object and then there's the attitude. And for mm-hmm. me, the meta practices in the last couple of years of my practice is like, I'm like, the hell with the object. Like, what's the yeah. attitude of mind? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the attitude of mind, it's right. It's it's like our viewpoint. It's like, where where are we looking at this from? And and that's right view, you know. That's right. And and, and that's why, you know, I, and, and if you look at the, you know, again, sort of technical, the fourth foundation of mindfulness to me is really right view. Sure. That's, that's what I think it is. I think it's saying, look at everything through the lens of Dharma. Like, how, how do you see this? And, and just like you're saying, it's like, there can be this, like, just noting and like pointing at things. But if you're not realizing that there's a point of view that's interpreting it, then you can be interpreting it in really destructive or not helpful ways or just over intellectualizing it or whatever and sort of missing the point, you know, that, and, and uh, yeah, so that right view to me uh, is the key. Yeah, no, I think that's right. The fourth foundation, which is, I think, one of the most confusing to a lot of people. I think about it all the time and I think you're, I think putting it in the, in the arena of right view is, is crucial. And also the ethical or the, you know, what is the attitude? And, and to me, like, what, because mindfulness of dhammas or dharmas, right? I, mean, I think actually yeah. I just use the most literal sense of it's mindfulness of the teachings. Uh-huh. Yep. You know, what are the teachings right. of the hindrances? Like the hindrances right. to me is an ethical game. Yep. These are destructive forces in my mind, and I need to recognize them and overcome them. Mm-hmm. And the awakening factors, you know, these are constructive and skillful, and I need to develop those. So to me, it's like, and people say, why do I have to need to memorize all these lists and so on and so forth? I'm like, well, yep. it can be pretty helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's really a, a key point, um, that if you don't sort of, uh, you, you drill down a little bit and understand these different elements of Dharma, then you're not understanding your experience in the right way. You're, you're, you're always going to be misinterpreting it. So e- even if you just keep in mind, not self and impermanence and maybe dukkha, you know, <laughs> the three characteristics, if you just keep one, one or two of them in mind, that's always going to help your viewpoint. It's like, all oh, right. Oh, it's impermanent. You know, um, everything is fragile, you know, um, and, and because then, you know, because impermanence and, and uh, you know, the fragility of the world then naturally evokes compassion. Right. And so, you know, uh, so you, you just need like one point, sort of one thing to be your, your, uh, 
touchstone or your sort of your pointer and then the dharma always opens up from from any any point of view but um yeah it's it's funny that it it does really help to understand the dharma uh in how you interpret your experience and how you how you are mindful of it yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask you that I've not gotten a good answer on, and I don't know if this is that important to you, but I'd be really <laughs> curious to see what you think. Do you think, when you think of the word recovery, which people have a lot of ambivalent feelings towards, is there a teaching or a term? If I asked you to say, what is what is recovery in a Buddhist mm. context, or what's the Pali term for recovery? What, what, mm. do, what do you think if... You know what? What? What are we talking about when we're when we're saying recovery from a Buddhist lexicon? How would you actually describe that? Oh, uh, that's a, a question I haven't considered. So I'll try to make something up, uh, which is you know my job. The best thing, really. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, spiritual awakening. Yeah. You know, so so uh, I guess if we consider, uh, I guess I would, okay, what I would call recovery in a Buddhist framework is a transformative insight. Because, and, you know, I've tried to make this distinction at times. Insight is like, okay, I understand that. Transformative insight, something I understand, and now it's changed my relationship to everything forever. And I can't be the same person. I can't behave in the same way. So that transformative insight is what happens when you truly break the addiction. When you so when maybe you, wisdom, right? Like just that, like wisdom, transformative wisdom. Yeah, but we uh, in our culture again, like a term like wisdom sounds like something intellectual. I know. So it has it has to have a behavioral element to it. And that's Sorry. why I like transformative wisdom. You yeah. know, wisdom that changes the way you live and behave. I feel like I could go on and on, and we might have to do this again, but I really appreciate it. I'd be happy to, Dave. It's it's really great to talk to you. You know, we do have a lot, um, well, to say to each other, but we have a lot of shared understanding, and, and I really appreciate um, just, you know, your questions are great, and it's it's really fun to get into it with you. So, yeah. Well, listen, I got a couple of just some fun questions before we go. Just three. Okay. You can only pick one. Okay. Uh, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Oh, come on, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I got to say Beatles. I'm sorry. I'm not mad you at know. you. Uh, Telecaster or Les Paul? Oof, Jesus, that's a strat, man. That's why I waited to the end. <laughs> it's a strat. Stratocaster. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Marshall or Fender? Fender. Okay. But I mean, that's just me. You know? No, I, I guessed. I thought you were. I, I guessed right. I knew you were gonna, and I knew you were gonna put Strat in there. But I thought you'd go with Stones <laughs> over Beatles. That was the only thing I was wrong about. You know, I've just been. I've been sort of thinking about the Beatles a lot lately. Like they are intriguing. The, the Stones are a more timeless music actually because they're blues based right. and the blues is and timeless totally. the beatles are a pop band but the beatles are fascinating and they they changed my life in radical ways yeah. all right three more three more okay satipatthana sutta or four noble truths well fortunately this 
the Four Noble Truths because they contain the right mindfulness, which is the Satipatthana Sutta. So, all right, you cheated there, but I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Satipatthana Sutta also contains the Four Noble sure. Truths. So, but if you had to double down, which one are you going to go with? If you had to teach tonight, which one would you go with? Four Noble Truths. All right. Uh, Thai forest tradition or the Burmese? Oh, Thai. That's what I thought. All right, lastly, if you had to teach again tonight, are you going to go with the hindrances or the awakening factors? The hindrances, because <laughs> I'm a negative type. <laughs> totally. I nailed I got all of them there. All okay. right, well, listen, man, I'll catch up with you soon. I'll send you the link when this goes up, and you can do, it, do whatever you want to do with it. But I appreciate the time, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks, man. All right, brother. Be good. Love you. You too, man. Bye.